0: Hey friends, welcome to Garden Church Podcast. This is a series called Jesus People. We are looking at who Jesus is and how we become more like him. Jesus People are God's strategy for transforming the world. We hope you enjoy this podcast. For more information, go to garden.church. My name's Darren, I'm one of the pastors. I've been greeting a lot of you new people. We're so glad you're with us. We are a family of God, a church. We worship Jesus. And so we, we believe Jesus lived in human history. He died on a cross and he raised from the dead. And we want to follow him with our whole life. This is not an event we participate in. We, this is a life we're called into where he desires to fill you with his spirit so that you may walk in the way you're intended to live your life in everyday, ordinary ways. We're in a series called Jesus People, which is a discipleship series. We're looking at who Jesus really was and trying to model our lives after him. So we've been in this long series, a couple more weeks, um, and then we'll start a new series in January called The Reconstructing Church. Um, and uh, I'm so glad to be with you. A couple of things that are on my heart uh, as I before I begin. Number one, those th- Christmas tags with Franklin Middle School. So Franklin, if you don't know, is a school we were meeting at for nine years as a church. And um, primarily low-income students in that school. And last week, over 250 gifts or needs were taken off of the the Christmas area over here. We need about 250 more gifts from you uh, to make it complete. So uh, there are some big things. Like I just found out there's a, a kid who needs braces. Somebody asked for a car. So if you want to give a car, we have a place for you to give a car. Um, I mean, some kids want like a soccer ball or like a uniform. Um, They did a request for kids that said, uh, how many of you have more than two pairs of shoes in your house for yourself and if they had two or less they were put on a list so that they could have more than two pairs of shoes um so these are these are real tangible things for people in our community and I would just love for your heart to be stirred to do that can I just ask you to do that all right thank you 20 people who said yes um (laughs) I feel very distracted. So I'm, I'm just personally like coming off of a, a boat parade from last night, Huntington Harbor boat parade. Anyone see that? Yeah? Anyone see my boat that I was on? Uh, You've probably heard us very loud dancing. You see my dance moves? No, okay. That's not why I'm distracted. There's just a lot going on. I just thought I could pray and then jump into the text. Before I pray, um, just by way of intro, um, no, I'll just pray. Jesus, we're real people and we have real needs and we're not perfect and we're easily distracted and confused and church can be weird and it can be awesome and we could be uh, hopeful and we could be really filled with despair. And I pray, wherever we find ourselves, whether we're angry or or joyful or disappointed, I pray, Lord, we would be fully ourselves today and bring our real self to you. Because Jesus, I pray that you would meet our real self today. The one that's full of joy and excitement and down and lost and confused. The one that's grieving, broken relationship or a lost relationship. And the one that's um, just filled with wonder at all the health they have. So wherever we find ourselves as a community, we just want to be where we are and invite you into where we are pray that as we uh, open our hearts to the word of God, we would be good soil, and we would be filled with wonder, and we would respond to what you're doing, in Jesus' name, amen. Somebody's Bible, I don't know if this is lost and found, but I found a Bible here, Um, so if that's yours, you can come get it, King James Version, there you go, thou, thy, thee. Okay, Uh, I'm going to preach on a topic today that all of you can practice, and it is an extraordinary practice that's a command. Um, It is something that will uh, be central to the ministry of Jesus and a way for you to usher heaven on earth. How exciting is that? Right? You in? All right, let me begin with a story. There's a an author named Tony Campola who also is a professor was a professor on the East Coast and he was traveling to Honolulu for a speaking engagement and because of the six hour time uh, difference he woke up at three a.m. and or I'm sorry woke up early in the middle of the night and he wandered the streets of Honolulu at three a.m. He stumbled into a diner that he describes in his book which the title alone is worth buying. Uh, the, the kingdom of God is a party. And um, he, he describes the diner as greasy. And he was the only one in there at the time. He orders a donut and a coffee and he sits at this tiny diner in this, at the counter with an overweight man that he describes as pretty filthy himself uh, as he eats his, his, his co- eats his donut and drinks his coffee. And, and, and in walks in eight or nine prostitutes. They fill the diner. They sit on both sides of him and they begin to talk in crude stories and language and he wants to get out of there as soon as possible but he overhears the lady next to him say to the girl on her right, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm gonna be 39. And her friend just rips into her and says, so what, what do you want me to do? Throw you a party and bake you a cake? And she says, no, of course not. I've never had a party. I was just wanting you to know. The prostitutes then exit the diner and he was moved by the conversation he overheard and he asked the man behind the counter, do those women come in here often? And he says, oh yeah, they come in here every morning around this time. His response was, hey, did you hear that the woman to my right, it's going to be her birthday tomorrow. What do you say we throw her a party? The man shouts to the back. He's the owner of the diner. His wife's cooking in the kitchen. Hey, this man wants to throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow. What do you think? Sounds good to me. They divvy up the plans. Tony, the author, goes to buy all the, all the decorations. He promises to be back at around 2 a.m. the next day or 2.30. And uh, they bake a, a birthday cake. So he gets there and he says... That word must have gotten out because practically the entire diner was packed with prostitutes. Because he said all the prostitutes in Hawaii were in this tiny greasy diner. Decorations that said, Happy birthday, Agnes. Um, and she walks in at 3:15, 3:30, and they yell, Surprise. And she's shocked. She stumbles can not barely walk to the counter as people help her to the counter. They sit her down at the, uh, um, at the, uh, the counter and she begins to cry as they bring the, the birthday cake out with candles lit and they sing happy birthday. She loses it, hysterically weeping, staring in awe at the birthday cake in front of her. And finish singing happy birthday. She just stares. Finally, Harry, the owner of the diner, says, Come on, Agnes, blow out your candles, or I will. So she reluctantly blows out the candles. He's quick to grab a knife and he says, All right, let's cut up the cake. And she says, Hold on, hold on. Can I just look at it for a little longer? He's like, Sure, Agnes, it's your cake. You can do whatever you want with your birthday cake. Can I? Do you think I could take it home? I live around the corner. Can I just take this birthday cake home for a little bit just to have it a little longer? He's like, yeah, of course. So she takes the birthday cake and he describes in the book that she walks like she was carrying a holy grail out the diner, around the corner, the door shut, prostitutes filled in the diner, Tony not knowing what to do, kind of the MC for the night, says, Hey, let's all gather around and pray. So there they are, a diner full of prostitutes and, and Tony prays for her salvation, prays for her life and the changes in her mind. And 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 as soon as he's done praying, he writes this in his book, The Kingdom of God is a party. When I finished, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice. He said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? And in one of those moments where just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And Harry waited a moment, and he almost sneered, and he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. (laughs) I'd join a church like that. The story has always haunted me. I read it when I was in college. Because the longer you follow Jesus, the less it looks like that. But when I read that story, it does feel, it seems like the Jesus of the scriptures. It seems like the Jesus that I read about in all of the gospels, this Jesus whose whose teaching was controversial, his ministry was always offensive, and his lifestyle was taboo. But nothing Jesus did was as controversial, as shocking, as taboo, or as scandalous as what Jesus did with hospitality in the first century context of all the things he could have done hospitality in the scripture in context was the most offensive and that's what I want to talk about today I want to talk about probably one of the most familiar stories that you know a story that you sing about in kids church maybe not in our kids church but you do sing about this in kids church we'll, we'll sing in a little bit um But it's a story that will challenge you and it will present an invitation for you to practice and extend heaven on earth through ordinary hospitality. Hospitality defined by Henry Nouwen is this. Hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where a stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people but to offer them space, where change can take place. It's not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom, not disturbed by dividing lines. Hospitality is this controversial gift that Jesus embodies. It's a posture, it's it's a habit, it's a practice, it's the demonstration of his ultimate vision for creation. And I'm gonna explain this in just a moment through the scripture. But hospitality is a really big deal. If you just open the pages of the, the New Testament, you will see that hospitality is a major deal for Christians, for followers of Jesus in the New Testament. In fact, it's a qualification for leadership in the church. It's expected, it's commanded. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse eight, it says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Stay right there. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. That's a powerful word. That alone is a gift for our community this morning. That love, love covers over a multitude of sins. Do you ever have a moment where you're preaching and you read the word and all of a sudden you're convicted by the Holy Spirit? Right, there's very few of us that have that problem. (laughs) I knew it was going to be a hard sermon to get through because I got here singing uh, John uh, Bon Jovi, Living on a Prayer. <laughs> I was like, yeah. And then I show up to the outside and I start reading the needs. And I just, ah. And then I'm thinking about all that God's doing. and I'm feeling overwhelmed. And now I'm preaching. And I feel the deep conviction of the Holy Spirit. Man, I have failed that verse. But here, I got to go through Here's how. Here's one of the ways Peter offers you a practical way of living out this idea that love covers a multitude of of sins. Verse nine, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Wouldn't you have liked to have this verse on Thanksgiving? As you're moving the living room out into the garage, (laughs) setting up for 60 family members, Offering hospitality is one thing. Without grumbling is a totally different concept for me. Can I get an amen? Anyone else want to? I feel like I'm naked on here. (laughs) Fully exposed. Romans 12 has a command for hospitality. It says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. So the Lord's people, that's the, share with the church who are in need. And practice hospitality. That word practice is to do the thing with intentionality and effort like a professional athlete. Be a professional athlete towards hospitality as the church. All right, I could just end there. We're, we're, we got enough for the rest of the week to work on, right? Am I right? Go to Luke chapter 19. And if you have a Bible, just pull it up. Let me see those, those of you that have uh, brought the, this awkward thing that's the life, bread of life and you can put your phone away. Unless you're taking a picture for that that QR code to give, that's fine. (laughs) Luke chapter 19. This is that familiar passage. I wanna read this story and frame this idea for us this, this morning as we talk about what it looks like to practice scandalous hospitality. Verse one of chapter 19 says, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, a wee little man was he. Um, was it, you're like, I didn't grow up in church, so that's the song. <laughs> Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I, okay, let me just say this for those of you that know the song, I'm not going to sing it. Let me just say it real quick. <laughs> sing it, my wife. <laughs> Are you killing me? <laughs> you're killing me. Let me just say something about this. Okay, I'm going to preach this sermon. I'm gonna give you context for Zacchaeus. I want you to think about how demeaning this this song is for this man's great faith, all right? Just think about that, here we go. So the wee little man Zacchaeus, he was a a chief tax collector and it was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short and could not see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Okay, familiar story. Often the most familiar stories in the scriptures are the one we don't really know the ones we misinterpret, we misunderstand. It, um, so let's get into this. Why was this story? I'm, I'm gonna suggest that this story is perhaps one of the most, if not the most, controversial stories, scandalous stories in the first century according to Jesus's ministry. That's, pretty, that's a pretty dramatic statement. I'm a dramatic person, as you know, <laughs> but that's a pretty dramatic statement. As a student of the scripture and first century context, I can back this up, and that's what I'm going to prove to you today. Why, why was this so scandalous? Why would you have been offended, disgusted by this story, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, especially if you're a first century Jew? So number one has to do with the nature and character of Zacchaeus. So his occupation was filled and saturated with corruption. So he was a chief tax collector. A better phrase would be a tax farmer. He was like a franchise owner tax collector. He wasn't just collecting taxes. He was so good at it, he franchised his own brand. And it made him a lot of money to the point where he had a home in Jericho, which would be like the Newport Beach of Southern California or Huntington Harbor now that they went through Huntington Harbor. I saw those houses on the water. They all have second story gyms overlooking the water. Side by side treadmills. I saw it. I was just like, man, I could get in shape if I had that house. (laughs) Could really walk with Jesus if I had a boat on the water. So Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was in Jericho, wealthy. That's where like all the wealthy uh, owners and and ruling class had second homes. It was the beachside community of Israel, Palestine, first century context. And so, but as a tax farmer, it meant a lot of things. It meant that he was conspiring with the Roman uh, Empire to collect taxes with the force of an army um, that was occupying the territory that Israel called the Holy Land. So they left Uh, what was their people to to partner with these infidels, these pagan worshipers, and they forced taxation. So they were hated, but not just that. In Israel, if you were a Jewish person, you couldn't associate with a tax collector because they were associating with these Gentiles. And so they were excommunicated from the family of God Israel, they they were no longer part of the, they couldn't worship God in the temple. They couldn't offer a sacrifice to God. So they were spiritually excommunicated. They're excommunicated from their families. If a family member was associated with this tax collector, they'd be shamed. They would be no longer welcomed in their own family. So a lot of people would say that their children have died. If their sons went into the uh, occupation of tax collecting, they would be seen as dead to their families. We're talking, you don't want to be near one of these folks, but that's not even close. We don't have a category for it. Unless we compare Zacchaeus to a modern day Jeffrey Epstein. How does that feel? Read that story over and put Jeffrey Epstein's name into Zacchaeus. And then you get a little bit of the idea of the kind of disgust you should feel with this guy having a meal with Jesus. Are you with me? Yeah. So that kind of guy Jesus goes to his island. I want you to feel it. I know it's hard to hear. You need to that's that's a culturally equi- cultural equivalent to kind of offense you should feel. So, you have Zacchaeus welcoming in a rabbi. Now, th- it's not just the evil, it's not just the corruption, it's not just the scandalous nature of the occupation of Zacchaeus. It also has to do with the scandalous nature of what's happening over a meal. Because in first century con- context, there's some implications for having meals. But in every culture, meals are what anthropologist Mary Douglas called our boundary markers. It's scandalous because of what meals represent at the time of Jesus. Boundary markers bring people together and they keep people apart. Even today, the general rule of thumb is you eat with your colleagues, your friends, or families, people that are kind of like you, right? I mean, Thanksgiving being the only time where you have to hang out with that crazy uncle. Apart from that, it's like pretty much you get to decide who you're spending time with. Now, this was especially true in Israel at the time of Jesus, and it has to do with some very significant implications I wanna give you context for. You guys with me? So 400 years before Jesus comes onto the scene in um, 2000 years ago, Israel was exiled. They were exiled because they disobeyed God and they, what happened is the temple was destroyed, the sacrificial system was destroyed, the priesthood was imprisoned and the people of God were taken off into Babylon where they had to figure out how do we live the Torah, the Old Testament, the law? How do we follow God without the priesthood, without the sacrificial system in an altar and without a temple? How do we live it out in exile? They had to reinvent worship. And so what you had 400 years before the time of Jesus is you have four things took place. Uh, They began to figure out a way to worship God without those things. So this is what they did. They said the home is the new temple. The table is the new altar. The father of the house is the new priest. And the meal is the new sacrifice. So the meal, the table, became the place that represented all the Old Testament sacrifices that you were required to have when you didn't have all of the Old Testament things to make it happen. So in exile, they faithfully lived around the table. How cool is that? It's pretty rad, right? And then the Pharisees come along, And these are religious folks, extra religious. There were 613 commands in the Old Testament. They added 1,500 commands on top of that. And they said, look, sin got us into this mess. Sin got us to this exile and and no sin is gonna get us out of this mess. So we gotta live a holy life. We gotta take all of the rituals and commands of living as a priest in a temple and apply it to everyone. That's their philosophy of ministry. And so that, that sounds really cool as well, except if you read the Bible in the Old Testament, you see That that means if that's how you're going to live, then you can never associate with sinners. You can never hang out with people with disabilities. You can't welcome anyone into your home unless you know they're pure and holy. And it created a culture of exclusion. It created a cancel culture. So by the time you get to Jesus' day, you would never be caught in a million years with any sinner, especially a tax collector, because of what the table represented. It represented fellowship. It represented something significant. It represented a, a sense of shared life, acceptance, forgiveness, and all sorts of things. And here's what you gotta ask. You gotta say, okay, Jesus didn't know what he was doing, or he knew exactly what he was doing, and he was making a point. Either he's really good at miscommunicating, and I don't know if this is going to go over well, but I, I had this moment where I did a really bad, I'm not talking about like interpersonal marriage miscommunication. I do that daily. Um, that's simple. But like I was on, I was preaching at a conference with thousands of people in the UK. And I told this story where I said, hey, just imagine me um, without my pants on. I was in, I would say, I was like, I was walking, you know, I was talking about being in underwear, but I was like, imagine me without pants on. But their word for pants is the word for underwear. Oh. so, trouser is the word you use so I'm like nobody's getting this and then afterwards like what you said was this what you meant was this so Jesus could be just not getting the fact that the table represents all this stuff or he's making the point that yes it represents all this stuff and now you have to reimagine what it means for me to hang out with this kind of guy so In in the East, here's one theologian. He says this about table fellowship. He says in the East, even today, to invite a person to a meal, listen to this, was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. In Judaism in particular, table fellowship means fellowship before God, for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. So this is what this theologian says. He says, the inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. that Jesus just having meals with sinners was the symbol of the message of Christ for the world. Now, stay with me for a second. I just wanna make a couple more points. How many of you know that in the Bible the number seven's a big deal? All right, cool. How many of you like the number seven just because of that? Yeah, I like it's like a strong, you're like looking at addresses, you're like, okay, that's a healthy house right there. <laughs> ordained by God. <laughs> It's got a seven in it. It's got a two in it. It's twice seven. That's even better. Let's go. Anyone weird like that? Just show me your hands. I just want to see who's. Oh, there's a lot more of us. You're in good company. (laughs) Highly favored ones. So in John's gospel, there's a structure in the book of John where he organizes it by a few different ways. It's a beautiful way, but he has seven things. He has seven signs, seven miracles, and then he has the seven I am statements, and he has 21 chapters, three times seven. So there's this big deal. It's a, a repeat of completion and holiness and wholeness and, and a sign of heaven um, and God. It's symbolic. It's beautiful. Now, in Luke's gospel, there are seven meals. There's a, and the seventh meal is the Lord's Supper, and then there's an eighth meal post-resurrection when he breaks bread and his disciples recognize him on the road to Emmaus and their eyes are open and they know who Jesus is. This is so symbolic. Meals are a really big deal. In the New Testament, Jesus has a primary ministry. His ministry is to proclaim the kingdom, teach the kingdom, and then there's three ways he primarily demonstrates the kingdom of God. So the primary message of Jesus is the kingdom of God has come near. The, the um, I just realized I had communion in my pocket here. I'm like, what is that? <laughs> Sorry. I got to, I'm like whoa. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm just I, look at how good I was. I didn't say the joke. I st- I kept the joke in my head cuz it was not appropriate. There's three primary ways that Jesus, Jesus then demonstrates or embodies the message of heaven on earth. Number one is he heals the sick. Number two is he casts out demons. And the third primary way he demonstrates the reality of heaven on earth is through table fellowship, hospitality. Hospitality, eating meals was a visible sign of showing to the world this is what heaven looks like. This is what God on earth looks like. The worst kinds of people are included at the table. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have your life figured out. It could be falling apart. And the point Jesus has for you today is even as it's falling apart, he wants to be with you in it. Yes. You could be soaked with the sins of Saturday night. And he's like, it's okay. There's still a table set for you and me to hang. That is such good news. For Jesus, the meal was the sign of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Hospitality in Jesus' time was a way of keeping people out. But for Jesus, it was a scandalous act of welcoming people in, especially those who were excluded by the religious culture of his day. So in other words, the hospitality is the, has the power to demonstrate heaven on earth, the kingdom of God. And what you see in scripture, I just need to make this point as we talk through this because the story's gonna continue, I'm not done. You guys make sense, is a big deal? I preach all 12 of us, got it? Yes. I see my people. You're the ones that are looking for sevens in my sermon. I got you. You're like, throw a three in there and see what happens. You know. So weird, right? Like, who does that? I do all the time. Let me just make this point real quick. I've been I've been really settling into the gospel, reading Romans over again, and realizing that Romans was written not to the outsider but to the church. How crazy is that? And I've just been overwhelmed by it. But I was reading this this and and this story reveals what's true, and I've always known this. But whenever the word of God is preached, whenever the kingdom is proclaimed, Jesus says, "Repent and believe." which is the response, like you have two possible responses to the message being proclaimed. You either reject it, you say, it's not for me. Jesus says, hey, heaven is on earth. Uh, you can have the life you were intended to live in the first place through relationship with me because what happened on the cross is I took everything that could possibly go wrong, I absorbed it. I took the worst the world had to offer, I absorbed it. I took death and sin and evil and the vandalization of shalom, I absorbed it and now I'm working out new creation through my resurrection. All you have to do is say thank you and now live in response to what's happened. This is from last week. Now, therefore, because this has taken place, a historical fact, you just get to accept it and now work it out. This isn't like other forms of religion or spiritual ideologies or ideas. This isn't like you have to figure it out. You have to climb the ladder. You have to get your life in order. You have to follow this, this pathway, and if you get off, you're gonna lose it. No, no, no. You only get it through gratitude and receiving it. That's the gospel. It doesn't make sense it's scandalous, it's too good to be true, absolutely, it's called good news. You with me? So you can say, no thank you. It's not for me. It doesn't make sense. I don't feel it. I I, I resonate more with these other ideas that have less historical realities to them, might maybe have other concepts, other books out there. You can just say, no thank you, and go on living. There's a story in in the Bible where another rich man comes to Jesus. But he was faithful. He said he follows all of the commands of the Old Testament. He literally gives a list. Jesus gives him a list. He's like he asked Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? How do I live the heaven on earth life now? And Jesus lists off the 10 commandments and he's like I followed all of these. And he said except one, sell He says because he was a rich man, sell everything you have and give to the poor then come follow me. He says there's this one covet coveting is in your heart. There's too many distractions in your life. You're overwhelmed. This wasn't a moral decision to say all wealthy people are lost. He was saying, this guy's heart issue is missing something. And the only way to get to his heart is to get rid of the possessions. He says, sell everything. He comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what do I got to do? And Jesus says, this is the thing you got to do. He hears it, and he walks away from Jesus. And then there's Zacchaeus. He wants to see who this guy is. He climbs up a tree. Jesus says, I'm coming over to your house. Let's have a meal. And then he's at the meal. And then in verse 8, it says, <clears throat> Zacchaeus stood up and said to the, to the Lord, Look, Lord. Do you see the difference? Most people say, Oh, what's up, teacher? In a meal, Zacchaeus has revelation. This isn't a teacher. This isn't a TikTok influencer. This isn't a therapist. This isn't a soul cycle instructor. This isn't a a yoga practice spiritualist. This is the Lord and Messiah in his house. And he stands up. He doesn't hear a sermon. He's not led into a four-point prayer on how to surrender his life and repent from his sins. He's having a meal and he's like, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Zacchaeus experiences the kingdom of God through a meal. He experiences this invisible reality of heaven invading his home. And he can't help but reconstruct his life around this new person, Jesus. He can't help but say, Hey, all this extra stuff that I got through ways that are beyond the people of God that have exploited them, I need to reorient my relationship to my things. Because these things no longer have the most influence in my life. You do, Lord Jesus. He's not an accessory, He's not a good teacher. He's either Lord and Savior and King, and therefore requires an entire reconstruction of your life, or He's a liar and he's not worth worshiping or following for that matter because he claims to be god so zacchaeus in this meal gets up and he starts handing out old cell phones he starts rearranging fridges he's passing out extra cars and he's doing what the old testament talked about about restitution if you cheated anyone this is what you do this is an old testament concept but more than that this is a picture of jubilee this is the promise. Jesus says, Isaiah 61, Luke chapter four, he prophesies, I, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That is the Jubilee passage. And in Luke 19, guess who's fulfilling it? The tax collector. The rich young ruler says, teacher, Zacchaeus says, Lord. And everything gets reoriented around that. That's the power of hospitality. That's the power of Jesus. Jesus. When you meet the real Jesus, he reconstructs your life. You, you hand him over, the, all of the sweaty mess, all of the, all of the ugly mess, the broken pieces, the pieces that you're sitting here ashamed of. And you say, what can you do with this? He's like, I can do a whole lot with that. And the only way to it is humility. I can't do it on my own. Will you come in? Will you be Lord of my life? I can't fix my marriage. Will you come and fix my marriage? I can't fix the anger I've known since I was three. Can you help me with my anger? I've read the books, I've read the blogs, I got a therapist, all those things are great. Jesus, I need you, savior, to save me. So Zacchaeus gets it. And this is the the upside down kingdom, by the way. This is what happens over and over again. It's like the disciples. Witness the folks who are getting PhDs in religion miss Jesus. The people who are the furthest away are getting him and the stories that are being told for centuries and millennium now are the stories about the folks who shouldn't get it. So when we sing Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, we're singing a song about the, the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world getting Jesus modeling response to the kingdom of God that's worthy versus our half-hearted rich young ruler responses which is I've done everything, I don't need you. How we doing church? Welcome new people, so glad you're here. You're like, is it like this normally? I think so. Like when, when Jesus comes into your life it's not like following a religious path. It's like a new, it's like a marriage. It's like having a kid. These are, the only, cl- these are the closest illustrations I have. I don't have an illustration for singleness other than that singleness did not prepare me for marriage. I do believe singleness can prepare you for marriage. I believe that with all my heart. The goal of singleness is not marriage. The goal of singleness is honoring and glorifying God. Same with marriage, are you with me? But the problem is singleness prepared me for singleness. It's, I was self-absorbed. I'll say it. I was 19, right? I met Alex at 19. We got married at 22 and 21. I, wasn't, I was a young buck. And I read, I read the books. I did all of this stuff with Bill. Bill was my pre-engagement, pre-marital counselor, Pastor Bill. He, we stood there on June 9, 2007. Look at that. Very little hesitation in that one. <laughs> And he said, you know, we said, you're now a husband. I had no idea how to be a husband. And what showed that was what happened after the wedding. Marriage revealed to me how little I knew what it meant to be a husband. Because everything started to change. My wife is an extreme introvert. Is that a fair statement? A a decent, really powerful introvert. (laughs) Energized by alone time, I was an extreme unhealthy extrovert, right? Didn't know what it meant to be energized by anything other than I just wanted to be with people. And when I got married, I thought she was killing my social life. Right? This is fair. And then she thought I was trying to kill her by, by exposure to people. <laughs> but everything changes you. And that's, it's, it's, marriages should change you. I have to learn how to love this bride, and I'm still learning how to love this bride, and she has to learn how to love me. And throughout the process of marriage, so many things changed because of this new relationship. Like, for example, rent got a lot more expensive than living with four guys by myself, <laughs> right? Like mom and dad provided for the car insurance. Now I have the car insurance as a 22-year-old. I remember, I remember the last thing that was off one of our parents and we were like, oh my gosh, what are we doing as 20-somethings? How are we gonna survive the real world by covering all of our bills, the Verizon bill, the we need insurance. No, we don't. We don't need insurance. Like all the things that you begin <laughs> to negotiate. I, I think some of you have heard this story, but I remember calling Alex going, wait, what kind of toilet paper do we need now? Like two ply? As a single man, it was the cheapest, right? Like the only thing that mattered was the cost. And even when I put that thing on, it didn't matter which direction it went, Right. <laughs> But now you get married and there's a ply that matters and there is a correct way. And you fight about the correct or incorrect way, right? (laughs) All these, I love these couples laughing right here like, yes, this is an ongoing fight. (laughs) I mean, it's silly, it's silly. But when you get into, or you have a kid and you're you're like singing songs to your kids, like you're driving around 3 a.m., like your sleeping patterns change because of your child then they should. They should change. That's my point. And my point is when you get into the relationship to Jesus, it's not like toilet paper and rent. It's like your finances and the the desires of your heart. It's like your time and your energy and your words. It's about the direction and vision you have for your family. It's about the health of your soul. It's about every aspect of your soul being reoriented to this new relationship. Does that make sense? That's what Zacchaeus reveals. And then what I love is Jesus gets up and he says, Hey, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Pause real quick. Who's not a son of Abraham? Anyone that's been excommunicated because of their decision. He's no longer welcomed in the fellowship with Israel. He's no longer a child of Abraham. He's cut off from the covenant of God's people because of his disobedience. But here Jesus comes in and says, salvation has come. He's included. A restoration of identity. All through table fellowship. And then Jesus says, um... For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, a quick side note on this, and then we'll close. I'll give you some practicals. This phrase, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, is a repeat line from the Gospel of Luke, and it's so important. I want to show you this. So, in Luke chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus says, For the Son, uh, the John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, I'm sorry, eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. And then he says this, the son of man came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. So he's describing what happened. John the Baptist living a wild life in the desert, eating locusts and honey, living in poverty, not doing anything. He's living a Nazarite vow. The Pharisees said, hey, you have a demon. And then Jesus comes, he calls himself the son of man. He's eating and drinking. They call him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. And it says the Son of Man came eating and drinking and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. Now, the Son of Man has happened twice. It happens in Luke 19 and it happens in Luke 7. And one theologian says the Son of Man is a phrase to demonstrate or reveal to the reader, to the disciple, Jesus' mission and his method. He says, one theologian says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was what Jesus did. And the mission, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, that's how Jesus did what he did. So hospitality reveals both the mission and the method of Jesus. One theologian says the entire ministry of Jesus appropriately captured in this phrase, divine hospitality to a stranger and sinner. The entire ministry of Jesus appropriately captured in this phrase, divine hospitality to the stranger and the sinner. Hospitality means the love of the outsider or the stranger, the welcoming of all as a guest. It's a beautiful concept. If you ever think there's one practice that can help us in 2024 to stay united, we get around a table and we say, hey, as far right and left as we can be in any political statement, we're still united under the blood of Jesus. That there's no diversity that we can't embrace when Jesus is what unifies. I would argue we can't embrace diversity without being unified in Christ because culture pulls us too far. Just a side note. Rosaria Butterfield writes this, radically ordinary hospitality. Those who live it see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. I want you to imagine this and and listen to this real quick. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or label. They see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the kingdom. They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Mic drop. Take it off, boom. <laughs> How we doing? Yeah. You all right? Hmm. Trying to say, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna land. Um, I had some thoughts on hospitality versus entertainment. Two very different things in our content. Most of us have been formed by a culture of entertainment. Everything has to be perfectly curated and clean. There's an invite list that's sent out weeks before. There's a guest and there's a host. Um, It's a a curated environment to put on your culinary skills. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But biblical hospitality is an open table. When there's not enough seats, you sit on the floor. If there's no room on the floor, you go outside. If the the table's too small, you get a bigger table everyone's welcome. There's a blurb of lines between hosts and guests because everyone shares in the par- and participate. It's about a posture of the heart. It's about a mindset. It's about attentiveness to the guests. It's about making people feel at home. It's having the intentionality to say that whatever is mine is now ours because this is God's in the first place. And it's about creating space in your life to hold space for difference and, and, and challenging, challenging conversations and pain. It's hospitality. Creates an environment where people who make the bad decisions are still welcomed back after they make the decisions, even though you gave them the the advice to make their life better. It doesn't matter because it's not about you, it's about them being welcomed as a symbol of heaven on earth, just like God does for us. That's hospitality. I want to invite you then to practice hospitality. You don't need a house, you don't even need your own apartment you could buy some Chick-fil-A, obviously not on Sundays, and welcome people because it's a posture. What little you have becomes abundantly more so because it's done unto the Lord. So my first invitation, uh, what I love about this is every single one of you can practice this. Now in this, the past series, I've been talking about practicing the ministry of Jesus. I've talked about you are all called as followers of Jesus to heal the sick and to cast out demons, and to preach the gospel. How you doing, church? Good? If you want to continue the ministry of Jesus, then every so often, take a meal and make it a practice. Take one meal this week. Dedicate that meal to the Lord as a practice of hospitality. You're going to, because how many of you eat? Oh, come on. (laughs) This is why I love this practice. We all eat. I gotcha. <laughs> Take one meal this week. Decide in advance. Invite somebody over. Invite, text that colleague. Say, hey, can we grab a meal? Buy them a meal at whatever restaurant you're going to and create space. Don't have an agenda. Don't give them the 15 steps to follow Jesus. Just welcome them with love and provide a space for them to be known. Do you know that loneliness is a health crisis in the United States, that the Surgeon General is organizing a federal task force to heal. It's crazy, because of the implications of what loneliness does to the body, to hypertension, to stress, to heart attacks. Church, we can cure that health crisis through you taking a meal a week and making it where heaven exists on earth. How are we doing? Some of you need to recommission your home. You need to go home and go, it's been too long. We've been selfish. We've been busy. We've been entertaining. We need to make this a home for the Lord. This is our mission field. And ask the Lord to, to rededicate your home, to give it to the Lord as his home and give your table as his mission field and invite the presence of God to fill your home afresh, and make that the space where heaven invades earth. And then begin to systematically go through the list Jesus gives you. He's gonna give you names right now as I'm talking. There's a list, you're gonna write that list down and begin to pray and then you're gonna start welcoming people. You're gonna be like, I don't have enough money to provide for it, why don't you do something? Don't eat, drink coffee every day out. Sacrifice for the sake of being generous, hospitable host. Does that make sense? Third thing, I just wanna pray for a release of gifts of hospitality. Have you ever had someone host you but didn't have the gift of hospitality? <laughs> but have you ever experienced the gift of hospitality? I had this last night. It was like the the host last night, every single age group, like my littlest, my wife and I, we all felt welcomed and at home and every moment was thought about. We, it's like time and space disappeared and we had what I will call core memories for my family. That was the gift of hospitality release from friends, hosting. Some of you have the gift, you gotta give it away. And I wanna ask for the Lord to give an impartation of gifts because that, that gift is a great need in our world today. I'm gonna say two more things. Some of you are here and you need to surrender your life to Jesus. Who would have thought Zacchaeus would be the the character of the Bible to bring you to Jesus? That wee little man got to your heart and you need to lay down your life today and just say, Jesus, I want you. I want you. And the, the last response is some of you need to let Jesus reconstruct your life. He's been teacher for too long. He needs to become Lord. You've said the prayer, you've invited him in, but he needs to be in your life. All right, let's stand. John, you got some words? Anything else? Should we just sit? Give me a second. Can we open up our hands? Holy Spirit, would you come? After, at the end. Holy Spirit, would you come? If you're new to church, we just open our hands as a posture of openness, we close our eyes and we believe Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the God we worship from the scripture who revealed himself in creation through his word and through Jesus uh, wants to dwell in this place and he wants to dwell in our lives. So we welcome his Holy Spirit to fill us afresh. And that comes not through striving, not through earning, it comes through receiving Jesus as Lord. So if you want to receive Jesus, Lord, you just say this prayer in your own heart. Lord, I, I surrender my life to you. I give you my life. I declare in my mind and heart and faith that you are Lord and raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. Would you, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And let me walk with you for the rest of my life. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, go to Garden.Church. God bless you.